I wonder if you're married, what is it you fight hard for? I love that phrase at the end of that video. I fight hard for that. I fight hard for time with this lady. If you're married, think about that. What are the things that you fight for in your marriage? Not necessarily the things you fight about, but what are you fighting for? Uh, If you have your Bible, go ahead and open them to Song of Songs chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one of these around you. It's page 470 in this Bible. If you don't own a Bible, just a reminder, please take this one home with you. Uh, It's our gift to you. Today, we're finishing up our series called Relationship Goals. Um, We've been spent the last five weeks in the book Song of Songs. We're following this couple as they met, as they dated, and they got married and found intimacy. And today, we're going to look at what happens when they face their first little bump in the road as we look at a picture of conflict. You know, we all have different ways that we fight, different methods of resolving conflict, don't we? I I think uh, you always see couples that uh, completely shut down and don't talk to one another. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's the ones that can't seem to keep their mouth shut at each other. And maybe you run into one of those at the grocery store or at Walmart, usually at Walmart, I think. Um, (laughs) I found one uh, story last week that was a little unconventional about the way that this couple resolved conflict. I wanted to share it with you. It comes from Women's Health Magazine. It's about Lisa Stossel and her husband, Emil, husband of 31 years. And the article says this, when she and her husband shared a home together, they bickered constantly. He's an introvert who doesn't like to entertain and doesn't mind clutter. And she's the opposite. They'd go to counseling and things would get better for a while before turning toxic again. After one nasty fight, Stossel drove around entertaining the idea of moving, but she still wanted her husband in her life. That's when the idea of the great compromise came to mind. So how did they resolve this conflict? Well, you've heard of couples that sleep in separate beds or in separate bedrooms even. Well, Stossel and her husband decided what would be best for their marriage was to live in separate houses. The article goes on. The couple with three grown kids has lived five miles apart for eight years now. Despite the distance, our marriage has never been closer, says Stossel. We see each other six days a week, have overnights four times a week. Most of the time he comes to my house. That makes sense since he's the clutter guy, right? Most of the time he comes to my house and I make dinner. We sit in front of the fire or share a meal by candlelight and chat about our day, the kids, the news, everything that couples talk about when they've been married for years. Sometimes, concludes Stossel, the best way to live happily ever after with someone is to live apart. I don't know if that's the best way to resolve conflict or not. And sometimes we can look back at the things we fight about and we can laugh about it later. But the truth is conflict is going to be part of your relationship. And this is true if you're dating someone, uh, if you're married to someone, uh, even the healthiest marriages, most romantic marriages, the most passionate marriages will eventually face conflict. And this is true in Christian marriage as well. Just because two people love Jesus and love each other doesn't mean disagreements won't arise and passions don't get stirred. So let's look in on our couple, Solomon and his now wife, as the wedding night is over and they run into their first uh, little rough patch. We're going to look at Song of Songs chapter 5, verse 2 is where we're going to start. She starts. She says, I slept, but my heart was awake. So it's late at night. She's gone to sleep, but she's sleeping restlessly fitfully. She's missing her husband. She's there by herself. Her husband is gone. And she goes on. She says, listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. Now we know when a guy says, my dove, my flawless one, there's probably one thing on his mind, right? 
Well, we know most of the thing, there's one thing on his, most of the time there's one thing on his mind. But in this case, we can tell there's probably one thing on his mind. He says, my head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. So Solomon has been out all night. He's probably working. He's probably in the fields, maybe with the flocks or, or with the crops. He's sweaty. Uh, it's probably early in the morning. I mean, his head is drenched with dew. He just wants to clean up, have a meal, and enjoy some time with his wife. But she shuts him down. That's what she, we're going to say. She says, I have taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I have washed my feet. Must I soil them again? Now, you should know that phrase in Hebrew, must I soil them again, is actually better translated in English as I have a headache. <laughs> she, she's taken this position, not tonight. She's, look, look, I'm in my PJs. I've already showered. If you think I'm going to get all dirty for you again, you need to rethink that. Now, this is a scene that plays over and over again in many marriages. I'm not talking about the man comes in and the woman shuts him down, but I'm, here's what I'm talking about. Conflict happens anytime there's a gap between our expectation and our experience, right? Anytime there's a gap between our expectation and our experience, there can be conflict. You know, I want something and you don't deliver, or you expect something from me and I don't come through. But my wife, Benita, and I got married on a Saturday. We went on our honeymoon. We came back uh, later that week. And so the first weekend we had together as a married couple was spent in our new home. And uh, so the first Saturday that we had as a married couple, I woke up about 8.15. Did I mention it was Saturday? All right, I woke up about 8.15, and with my eyes just barely open, I look up, and there is my wife standing over the bed, staring at me, almost creepily looking at me. She would deny that she was creepy, but as a newlywed, you know, what do you think? She's looking at me, and I said, hey, honey, what's up? And she said, are you going to sleep all day? <laughs> and I looked at the clock, and I said, uh, it's 8.15. And she said, yeah, are you going to sleep all day? Like, I had this expectation as a newlywed that I would be able to continue my pattern of sleeping in on the weekend. She had this expectation that once we were married, that she was going to get to spend weekends with her husband. So what I thought, what I expected, and what I experienced was different. What she expected and what she experienced was different. She was thinking, this guy's a lazy bum. How did I not know this before we got married? And I was thinking, what have I gotten myself into? I'm never going to sleep in again. By the way, if you want to know how we resolve that, we've compromised. I now don't sleep past 8.15. So... <laughs> I don't know how the expectation gap will hit you. It could be at a much deeper level, you know, where you're married for years and you think, this, this just isn't what I thought marriage was going to be. Or you get 12 or 15 or 20 years in and you barely get along and you think, we just need to be together for the kids. And before long, you're like just no more than roommates, really, sharing the bills, sleeping in the same room, but, but very distant. Like he's not the same husband that you thought he'd be, or she's not the wife that you thought she'd be. There's a very real expectation gap, a gap between your expectation and your reality or your expectation and your experience. Now, I don't know how that'll hit you, but that's what's happening here in the text. And that's what happens to ignite most conflict in marriage and in fact, any relationship. In, in fact, because if you always do what I want and I always do what you want, then we're good, right? But it's only when there's a gap between our expectation and our reality uh, that conflict arises. And from the rest of this interaction that we see with Solomon and his wife, we're going to see that the key to handling conflict is how we act in that expectation gap. 
And so it goes on, uh, verse four, my beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. Now, most scholars believe that this is a peace offering from Solomon when he puts his hand through the latch, that he's heard his wife. She's not up for what he's wanting and maybe he's disappointed, but he sends her a bit of love by jiggling the latch and saying, okay, I hear you. I hear you, but I still love you. And in fact, uh, he leaves a little gift. He puts some myrrh on the doorknob we're gonna see here in a second. So she goes on. Uh, I arose to open for my beloved, my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. So he's left her a little gift, a little love offering there. Verse six, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but I did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. So hearing this jiggle of love, she has a change of heart. She decides, okay, maybe I will get my feet dirty again. Maybe I will put on my robe. And so she decides to go let Solomon in the bedroom. And when she gets there, he's gone. Now, we don't know why, but we can probably guess. Like we can have, uh, uh, we can can make a supposition that he's frustrated, right? He's frustrated. He's trying to get in the bedroom. She won't let him in. And in the tension, he decided to walk away and process rather than to stay and fight it out. I wonder if that's ever happened to you that you get into a conflict, a situation, maybe with a spouse, maybe with someone you're dating, maybe even just with a friend, and you think, if I stay here, I'm going to say something I'll regret. And so it's better for me to get out of the situation for a while. Maybe you spend a night on the couch. Uh, Maybe you went for a drive, or maybe you ended up spending some time at your parents' house, uh, whatever that looked like. I think that's what's going on here. Solomon was frustrated, so he went to walk around a bit. you know, And then she went looking for him. But I want you to see how the way he responded to her, which is that little signal of love and some other things that he does, uh, really causes her heart to start to change toward him. Okay, verse seven. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak, these watchmen of the walls. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? Tell him, I am faint with love. Now, scholars disagree a little bit on whether this woman actually went out into the city and got beat by the watchman. Uh, some people think it was a dream. Uh, some people think it actually happened. My guess is I think we can suppose that she didn't actually get beaten by the watchman because why? Because she was the queen and the watchman worked for the king. And if they had beaten the queen, well, he'd have had their heads. And so what I think is happening here is uh, that she was going throughout the streets looking for her husband. And whenever she would come upon a watchman, she would say, have you seen the king? And the watchman say, I haven't seen him. And it bruises her soul, like that she's torn up and she's sent away without being able to find him. And now she wonders if her husband's ever gonna come back to her. Like this is probably their first real conflict in marriage. And she's so torn up. She says, tell him, if you see him, tell him I'm faint with love. Now, this is a pivotal stage in any conflict. It's the moment when our heart turns and we start to focus less on what the conflict is about and more about how the relationship is going, this relationship we have. Like all of a sudden, this woman, she, she wants him, she needs him. And I want you to see why her response is so important. Because in these moments of conflict, uh, when the tension is high, we have a choice of whether we use the circumstances to manipulate someone or that we decide to pursue So here's what I mean by that. Like she turned him down and he ran away. A lot of people would use a response like his to manipulate their spouse to get what they want. 
Like when, when we make a mistake, I think we do this, uh, a lot of us do this. This is our human nature. This is our flesh. When someone makes a mistake, when they hurt us, when they burn us in some way, we're going to use that to get what we want, right? So we shut down. We give them the silent treatment. We cut them off from sex or intimacy or affirmation or whatever it is. They need to feel loved. And, and we think by doing this, we gain the upper hand in the conflict, that's when we decide to manipulate, right? But she didn't use this moment to try to manipulate Solomon. Instead, she decides to pursue him. Like that her heart is changed by his response, so much so that you've got to see what happens next. Her friends ask her, what's so great about this guy? Like that's the next part of the, the chapter. What's so great about this guy? What is it about Solomon that gets you so wound up? And then look at what she says. Look down to verse 10. She says, my beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. Guys, there's a line you can use, right? Rods of gold. His body like polished ivory decorated with lapis lazuli. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as its cedars. His mouth is a sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved, my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. So this woman who like 20 minutes ago didn't want anything to do with this guy, all of a sudden she's obsessed with him. Like God has changed her heart. Solomon didn't do it. Solomon wasn't even there. We can't change our partner's heart. Only God can do that. But it helps when we respond well in the expectation gap and if we give him the time and the space. So you need to realize, even as we grow in intimacy with God and with one another, there are still gonna be moments where we disagree. There, there's conflict in every relationship, even the healthy ones. Now, that does not mean that more conflict is better. So if you're dating someone right now, and you're fighting all the time, it is not a good sign. Right? I mean, if you fight sometimes uh, and you work toward resolution when you fight, that's good, that's natural. But, but if you're fighting all the time, and especially if you find yourself fighting to win, that's not good. And sometimes people will think, well, maybe if we get married, the fighting will go away. Bless your heart. <laughs> if you're married, you're always fighting with your spouse. Maybe you think, well, let's have kids. That'll fix it. Maybe you think there's so much stress, we just need a vacation to the Bahamas. Well, if money problems are a part of the stress, that's just going to cause more conflict. And don't think your conflict will change just because your circumstances change. And conflict at the root of all conflict is a gap between our expectation and our experience. And how we act in that gap makes all the difference as to whether the conflict will be healthy for our relationship or will destroy it. So if we can't get rid of conflict... How do we manage it so that we'll enhance and grow our relationship? In other words, how do we act in that expectation gap? That gap between expectation and reality, how do we act in that gap? There are four things I think that we can see from this passage, and we're going to borrow from some other scripture. I've included these in your notes if you want to follow along. Uh, the four ways we should act in the expectation gap. Number one is this. We need to trust positive intentions. Trust positive intentions. During uh, week three, I think it was, we talked about the wedding vows, and we, we talked about how important it is to remember uh, what you promised your spouse on your wedding day. I mean, if you're married, you think back to that day, that, that season of your life, even if it seems so distant now, you'll remember that there was something or probably many things 
about that person that drew you to them, that, that made you love them, that, that, that there's something in them that said, hey, I can trust this person, that I believe this person has my best interest at heart. And uh, one thing that can help us all in the expectation gap is to believe that that thing is still true about that person, that, that, that just like your spouse said, I love you on your wedding day, that it's still true. And then when something, uh, they do something that causes that gap, it's not because I'm going to believe, it's not because they're trying to annoy me, but it's because I trust that it's, it's because they don't understand the expectation gap, that there's an expectation maybe that's unexplained or unspoken. We, we see that in this story. She's, the wife is really tired. It says that uh, she's been sleeping fitfully. You know what it's like, right? When you sleep fitfully, when you uh, awake and asleep and awake and asleep. I think sometimes when you do that, it's better not to fall asleep at all, Right? when you're awake all the time and then falling back asleep. So she's really tired. Well, Solomon trusts that. He trusts that she's really tired. He, and he juggles, jiggles the lock to say, I love you. I hear you. I understand. And she trusts his good intentions, that even when he's walking away, that he's doing it for the right reasons. And so she comes running after him. You know, one thing to understand in our marriage conflict, uh, maybe in all conflict, and probably the most important thing to remember is that your spouse is not your enemy. Your spouse is not your enemy. Your spouse is on your side. You two generally want the same thing. Your spouse is not the enemy. In fact, Ephesians 6 tells us, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a very real enemy who would like to make you believe that your spouse is the real enemy. And in fact, uh, Satan likes to use marriages uh, as a weapon. He will drive a wedge between a husband and a wife because it makes Christ look bad. And we talked a couple weeks ago that, uh, you know, if our marriages as Christians look better than other marriages in the culture, like if we were uh, loved harder, uh, loved longer uh, than other marriages, then it would have a huge impact for Christ. And, and, And your enemy knows that. And so he'll use every tool at his disposal to come after you and your spouse. But when you trust positive intentions, you disarm him. If he can't pit you against your spouse, then his game is foiled and he'll have to go somewhere else to fight. So number one, trust positive intentions. Number two is this, don't get historical. No, that's not a typo. It's not supposed to say hysterical. I mean, don't get historical. One thing that we love to do sometimes, you may find it, this is a great weapon in an argument, by the way, is we bring up the past. This may never happen to you, but if you and your partner are having, say, a discussion, it may be an intense discussion, and all of a sudden they blurt out, this is just like that time in 1991 when, and you stop in your tracks, right? There's, there's no response to that. One, because you probably don't remember what happened in 1991. You don't even remember who was president in 1991. And two, even if you did, you couldn't change what happened back in 1991 or 2006 or last year or whatever it was. Another way we get historical is we blame this particular conflict on the character of our spouse. We'll say things like, well, you never, or you always. We're we're in effect saying, every time this happens, your character reverts to this particular behavior or this particular trait. This is all about you. And if you could only, and if you ever were able to do this, right, we're getting historical. We're saying we're comparing this particular conflict to every other conflict we've had in our marriage. One other way is that we'll bring up our spouse's parents, Mm-hmm. There's no surer way to get to blood boiling than a reminder, you're just like your mother. You know, or you tell him, you're only like this because of how your dad treated you. 
Our current conflicts can quickly become historical. But 1 Corinthians 13 reminds us that love does not dishonor others, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, and that it keeps no record of wrongs. It keeps no record of wrongs. We sometimes keep a record of wrongs, right? We've got a record in a file or maybe even written on a napkin somewhere in a drawer with our spouse. So many times at some point in the argument, the conflict stops being about that thing and it starts being about all the things, right? Because... Uh, This is just like the last time. We bring up the past because it gives us power, right? The more charges we can bring against the defendant, I mean the spouse, the better our case is. And that's a great way uh, to win an argument. It's not a great way to have a marriage. In fact, it's a dangerous way to have a marriage. A lot of counselors will tell you uh, that when you're in a fight and a conflict, you have to think, would I rather be right or be happy? Now, the problem comes when uh, some of us, um, what makes us happy is to be right. <laughs> and if I'm right all the time, I'm happy. And so you think you've like, I found a way around that little conflict there, but that's not healthy for our relationship. Conflict, uh, in its best sense, seeks resolution, not victory. The goal of marital conflict should always be to build the relationship and not to tear down the other person. So don't get historical. Uh, number three, the third way that we should act in the expectation gap is to own your part. Look, I know you're practically perfect in every way, all right? But there are two sides to every story. And that's true uh, even when we're so invested in the one side that we can't possibly understand someone being on the other side. I mean, this happens all the time. It happens in politics. How could anyone possibly vote for that guy or that woman? It happens in sports. The fans of XYZ team are complete idiots, especially if they're from Boston. (laughs) You're welcome, Allie. And it happens in conflict. I'm right, you're wrong, end of story. But not so fast. Because I want to point you to what is probably the best teaching on conflict of all of Scripture. And it's in uh, James, James 4.1. James says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? In other words, he's asking this question. What is it? What is it among Christians? What is it among people that causes us to fight and quarrel with one another? He's asking that question. Then he's going to answer. Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So James who was the brother of Jesus, by the way. He was the son of Mary, the mother of Jesus. James says that the reason we fight is not because our spouse is a jerk. It's not because she's like her mother. It's not because she's always running late. It's not because he never picks his socks up off the floor. It's not because she talks to me like I'm an infant. It's not because he's always working late and he's never there when I need him. What causes fights and quarrels, James asks? Is it not our desires, my desires that battle within me, the desires that battle in my heart, there's something I want and I do not have. It's the expectation gap. He says, you covet, but you don't get what you want, so you fight. And so we've said throughout this this series that only two things need to change to make a marriage great, the husband and the wife, right? And that you can only change one of those things. Well, this is what James is saying. He's saying that the quarrels, the fights you have come from within you. 
that you have a part in that, that no matter how wrong you think your spouse is, that there's ownership in your own heart. So let's pause for a moment and think about the things you fight about most. You may not have to fight for very long. For some of you, it's only been 20 minutes uh, since you had that last conflict. All right, got it? You got that thing that you fight about the most? Okay, now think about that desire that's not being fulfilled, that's causing that conflict. What's the expectation that you have that's not being met? James says that's what causes the conflict. It's that desire battling within you that you, James says lovingly, you are the root of the problem. So how do you solve that? Well, James goes on to give us the fourth key to closing the expectation gap. Verse two, he continues, you do not have because you do not what? You do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James reminds us that sometimes, sometimes our conflict is not even, is caused by us expecting something from our spouse that they are not even equipped to give us. Like we desperately want our wives to be more affirming to us, but that's not who they are. You want your husband to be more sensitive to your feelings and your needs, but God didn't make him that way. Not that they can't change, because they can, but that all of your whining and fussing and complaining and ignoring and yelling won't change them. James says that the expectations we have, if we want to see them fulfilled, those desires that battle within us, if we want to see them fulfilled, we need to ask God for them. And he said, when you don't ask, you don't receive. But if you just ask, your gap would shrink or disappear completely. So what's the fourth key? Fourth key is to pray, is to ask. Pray for our spouse. Pray for our expectations. Pray for the desires that we have that are quarreling within us. James says, you don't have because you don't ask. Or he goes on, he says, because you're asking with the wrong motives, that you're, you're praying and you're trying to shape your spouse into the person you want him to be or her to be instead of the pers- praying to, for God to make you the person that he wants you to be. So let's turn back to our couple now and see how this conflict gets resolved in uh, Song of Songs chapter 6. Her friends ask her, where has your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn so that we may look for him with you? And then she responds, my beloved has gone down to his garden, to the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies. So she knows where he's gone. She she knows he's gone down to the garden to walk off his frustration. and, and And we see the work that God has done in her heart as she says, I am, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He browses among the lilies. And now watch how Solomon responds. Okay, he's had some time to cool off. He's had time to process. He's probably had time to pray. This is not a supposition on my part. What we know about Solomon is he was the son of David. David was probably one of the most proficient, prolific, and eloquent prayers in all of scripture. He wrote some of the greatest prayers that we have in all of scripture. We know that he prayed all the time. So I'm assuming that Solomon prayed about this. And here's what he said. Verse 6, 4, he said, You are as beautiful as Tirzah, my darling, as lovely as Jerusalem, as majestic as troops with banners. You know, sometimes Christian marriage can be elevated to this pedestal that supposes it to be perfect, that it's going to be without struggle, without conflict, without hurt, but that's wrong. I mean, it's just, it's not biblical. 
Because in the end, marriage is an imperfect union between imperfect people. Like that even Christian marriage is a union of citizens of heaven living on a temporary earth. And sometimes young couples get married and they feel like they've been hit by a bulldozer of conflict. They can't really tell anybody about it because they know that in church they hear this song that at the cross, at the cross where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. And so that's how I'm supposed to live. I'm just supposed to be happy all the way. So I I can't really tell anybody about this. I can't be real with my conflict. I can't be real with the problems I have with my spouse. But that's not how marriage works in a fallen world. That God will often use this union to take two sinners to a deep place of honesty. And he does this to deepen our dependence on him. You know, marriage is hard. And and if you're married and you're not a Christian, if you don't have like that hope of Christ in your corner, I don't know how you do it. Because it's not easy. You've got to die to yourself every day. Remember, marriage is meant to be a representation of the love God has for us, for his people. And this story, Song of Songs, is not just a story of a man and a woman. It's an allegory for our relationship with God. I've read that a Hebrew person reading this text would have been stunned by the actions of the woman in turning down her king. And also that they would have been amazed at the way the king reacted with his pleading and his patience. Like kings don't beg. Kings command. You know, this picture of Solomon is much like the picture of our shepherd king, Jesus. Revelation 3 calls him the king of kings and lord of lords. And in Revelation 3.20, we get a picture of what he's like when John writes, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. What are the tender words of our Savior like? I'm here, I'm standing at the door, I'm knocking, I'm ready to come in. I'm ready to help, I'm ready to listen, ready to be a friend. But you gotta open the door. Yeah, precious invitation from our King is for you, it's for me. It's an invitation into a relationship with him and to experience that love that he has for us. And how did he show us that love? The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, that he gave up his life. And if we want to represent that well in our marriages, we have to die to ourselves every day. And when we love each other well, when we walk by the spirit, when we take responsibility for our own sins, when we forgive our spouse when they sin against us, marriage can become the deep lasting joy it's meant to be as we bring glory to Jesus in our marriage relationship. Would you pray with me? God, I'm so thankful for this allegory of your love for us that you've given us an earthly picture of something that's heavenly that we can't possibly understand. And Lord, we know it's not perfect. We know language uh, plays a part in our misunderstanding sometimes of how you really love us and how you feel for us. But God, we know that you sent your son to the cross for us, that that you gave up what was most precious to you so that you could have us for eternity. And God, that's got to say something to us. So we thank you for that. We thank you that you want to act in our lives, not just then, not just when we die, but right now, Lord, that you want to act in our relationships and our marriages, uh, in every area of our life, Lord, where there's a a separation, a, a gap between us and you, Lord, that you want to work, that you've already done the work to close that gap through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, we want to celebrate 
what Jesus did on the cross for us as we close our service today. So if you're able, would you stand and sing with us one more song?